we don't need tips, we don't need techniques, and the Bible says we need to understand God better uh, in order to pray better. Well, just imagine the scene. You're watching a cowboy film, a great western. Uh, let's assume Clint Eastwood is the, the main hero. He normally is in the cowboy films. And it's towards the end of the film. Things are reaching a climax. And Clint is about to storm the sort of the base of the baddies. Okay, they've kind of got their, their base somewhere out in the mountains, out in the sticks. And Clint is just preparing himself, bracing himself to take them on and to, to get rid of them all. And on his way, his lonely horse ride to, to where the enemies are, he comes across a chapel and finds there a priest, a, a missionary or something. And he spends some time with this man. Uh, the guy gives him some food, he looks after the horse, gives him some refreshment and encouragement. And just as Clint is about to leave, the priest says, take me with you, I'll come and help. And Clint, with a sort of steely, square-jawed expression on his face, says, no, you just pray. And off Clint goes on his own. Now, as they begin to part, you see Clint getting on his horse and, and gearing himself up for the final gallop. And you see the priest turning round, going back into his chapel and kneeling down to pray. Now, if you were watching that movie, at that particular point in the film, who would you want the camera to follow? Would you like the camera to follow Clint as he gallops off to, to, to no doubt, beat up the bad guys? Or would you want to follow the priest and just watch him praying well I guess for most of us we want to watch Clint don't we, we want to see all the action and the fisticuffs and the gunfight and all the rest of it, people being thrown through windows and all the other things that always seem to go on because we think that's where the real action is he's the one who's doing the real work that's where the, the real excitement is going to be that's where the drama is uh, he's the one who's doing something of consequence the other guy, well he's just praying and all that is wrong in our view of prayer is summed up by that word just you just pray uh, prayer very often has an image problem um, back home in the UK I don't know what it's like here prayer is something the women do um, it's got a very poor image and Christians aren't people who pray much and so I thought it would be good this week to begin our little series on prayer by asking the question, why? Why should we pray? Why should we pray? And a very good place to start is, what is prayer? So by way of introduction, what is prayer? Well, let me just read to you some verses from Luke chapter 11. Uh, Jesus' disciples, uh, don't turn this up, we won't spend long here. Jesus' disciples come up to him and say, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. You can imagine John's disciples have been saying to Jesus' disciples, that's great, John's been giving us a little school on prayer. And Jesus' disciples are thinking, hey, we've not been taught about how to pray yet. So they go up to Jesus, Jesus, teach us to pray. And it's a reminder that we need to be taught to pray. It's not going to come naturally to us. Uh, we need to be taught how to pray. Well, Jesus answers them by saying, when you pray, say. When you pray, say. Father, hallowed be your name. In other words, prayer is talking to God. Um, prayer is talking to God. Often and especially it's asking of God, making requests to him. Uh, that is 
prayer in its simplest form in the Bible, talking to God. And so a few things flow from that. Prayer, therefore, is not listening to God. Okay, the Bible has lots of things to say about listening to God in all sorts of ways. But as far as I can see, it never uses the category of prayer to describe it. Uh, Listening to God is very, very important, but it is not called prayer in the Bible. Uh, Prayer is not listening out for that still, small voice within. No, prayer is one-way communication. It's us speaking to God. Prayer is not reflective silence. Uh, It's not a sort of a quiet moment to ponder things. That's called thinking uh, rather than praying. Uh, Prayer is not a state of being as if God is some force and we have to attune ourselves to him to get ourselves on the right frequency, to tune into God FM. No, prayer is not a kind of wordless mood that you try and get yourself into. Prayer is talking to God. And let me say as we begin this little series that Satan wants to stop us from praying. And it strikes me that one of the most effective ways he does that is that he convinces us prayer is something else and gets us to do that instead. No, prayer is talking to God and asking of him. And the key, therefore, to effective prayer is to know who God is. I'm sure we all struggle with prayer. We don't pray the way we would like to. We don't pray the way we sense we ought to. And many books on prayer will give you lots of tips about how you can pray better. They might give you some examples of great praying Christians from the years. George Muller or Hudson Taylor. And look at what they did and the time they used to get up and how they would pray and the hours they spent at it. And sometimes that can be very helpful and we we sort of think, right, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be Hudson Taylor this week and I'm going to get up at three o'clock in the morning and pray for 27 hours and then get up at three o'clock the next morning. And we might manage it for the first day or two, but then, well, we just get out of the habit again, don't we? Well, the key to effective prayer is to understand again who God is. So when Jesus teaches us about prayer, he doesn't talk to us about our posture, as if that's the key to the whole thing. Oh, if you're kneeling, then that will mean you pray better. He doesn't talk to us about special breathing exercises that will help us sort of mellow out and and be more relaxed. He doesn't talk to us about the kind of music we might be listening to in the background to kind of make it feel a bit more spiritual. He doesn't talk about the way the room is lit. Uh, Believe it or not, there are a lot of people who think if, if you get the lighting right in a room, then you will pray more effectively. Jesus doesn't talk to us really about the kind of time we spend praying, whether it's five o'clock in the morning or five o'clock in the evening. No, when the Bible teaches us about prayer, it is teaching us about God. Because once we understand God, we will pray to him. And so when we're not praying properly, it's because we've forgotten important things about who God is. So why should we pray? Well, the Bible gives us two reasons. Because God is able and because God is willing to answer our prayers. And those are going to be our two main points this morning. Uh, God is able, he is the sovereign, and therefore we can pray to him. Uh, Turn, if you were, to Acts, Acts chapter 4. I don't have a a page number for you on that, but someone can shout one out, I'm sure. Acts chapter 4, verse 24. Anyone got there and can tell us the page number? 773. 
Um, we're not going to be based in one passage for the whole of this talk. We'll be looking at a few different verses. I'll always read them out. So if you don't turn fast enough, don't worry. Just sit and, and listen. And the references are there on the, the handout for you to look up a bit later on. In Acts chapter 4, the, the Christians have, have been told off for preaching in the name of Jesus. Uh, they've been threatened with various uh, beatings and, and punishments. Wonderfully, they say to the authorities, well, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. A wonderful conviction that they cannot not speak about Jesus. But they get together and they pray about this situation. And look at how they start that prayer in verse 24. They raise their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said. Okay, because God is sovereign, because God is all-powerful, we can pray to him. God is not limited. And therefore, whatever it is we're praying about, God is in control of it. And that is a great incentive to pray. If God was loving but not sovereign, well, he'd want to help us, but he might not be able to. Now, I hope most of you have uh, got to meet uh, Chris and Mark. They're with you, I think, for a year. Um, They have been uh, telling me how much they've enjoyed being here already and how welcome you've made them feel. I've known Chris and Mark for four years. I'm really glad they're out here because they, I'm sure, um, will be a great blessing to you and and you to them as well. Uh, They're great Christian lads. They're both, I think, full of the Spirit. And they will do anything they can to help you. Okay? I'm fairly sure of that, so you can test them out on that later on. But there are certain things they won't be able to do. It's wonderful that they're nice guys who want to help. But if you're stuck in a traffic jam... I don't think they can do much about that. Uh, They can't move all the other cars away. Uh, If you're stuck in a thunderstorm, they can't stop the rain. Uh, If you're having trouble with your boss at work because he's, he's rude to you, well, Chris and Mark can't change your boss's heart. No, what we really need is a God who is able to help us in every area of life, a God who is in control. And the Bible shows us just how it is that God is in control of every area of life. And I've got a few examples for us to think about. Uh, We see that God is sovereign over kings. So Proverbs 21 verse 1 says this, The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. He directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. Okay, so over every king and ruler, God has complete power. Uh, their heart is in his hand and he can steer it wherever he likes. Uh, When I was a child, and yes, still now, um, one of the things I used to love doing was going to the seaside and going onto the beach, getting a big shovel and making lots of rivers and streams and and lakes on the beach. I don't know if you do that over here, but it was something I used to love doing back home. Uh, My grandparents used to live on the coast and had a glorious, lovely beach. The sea would go out very fast. There's a big beach. Lots of little lakes were left behind on the beach. And I would walk out there with my shovel, and by the end of the day, I'd have reconfigured most of the coastline of uh, southeast England. It was great fun if you've got a big pool of water, making a channel and steering it over there, and then thinking, actually, I'm going to have it down here. Well, as easy as it was for me to do that, as easy as it was for me to do that, it is just as easy for God to direct the heart of a ruler because he directs them like a watercourse wherever he pleases. Whatever ruler it is, whether it's 
the ruler of Malaysia, whether it's the ruler of Britain, whoever it is, God has complete control over them. He's sovereign over nations even. Isaiah 50 verses 5 to 9 tell us that God raises up nations and he brings them down again. So even over every nation in the earth, God has control. I don't know what countries you are worried about at the moment. Maybe you're worried about Lebanon and Israel. Maybe you're worried about Iran, America, North Korea. I don't know who it is you might be worried about, but God has control over them. It is God who raises some nations up and brings others down. He's in control over every country in the world. Uh, If you're still in Acts, turn to chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, and God is sovereign over nature. Acts 14, and that should be verse 17 uh, on your sheet. Acts 14, verse 17. Okay, so uh, we read this. God has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Okay, so God is sovereign over nature. It is God who controls the rains. It is God who controls the seasons, the weather, the sunshine. It is God who makes the crops grow. So if you go to the market and they've got lots of food in the market, it is because God has provided that through nature. He's the one who's provided the good crop. Uh, if you go to the market, uh, maybe sometime this week, to buy some durian, and you discover there is no durian anywhere in the market, well, that's because God is sovereign, and he's kind as well. <laughs> uh, therefore, God is sovereign as well over provision. So Psalm 104 says the lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. So the psalmist is taking us on safari. We're in the Masai Mara. We're looking at the lion and the lion is chasing uh, someone from the Discovery Channel who's trying to film him. (laughs) And the psalmist says the lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. God provides us with our food. Uh, He even provides the lion with the lion's food. Uh, Forward in Acts to chapter 17. And verse 26, God is sovereign over our circumstances. Acts 17, verse 26. From one man God made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. Okay, the Bible suffocates us with the fact that God has all power. He determines when we live, he determines even where we live. Okay, so if you've just moved house or moved into a new apartment, God has determined where you've lived. He has control even over those kinds of circumstances. So God is able, he is the sovereign Lord, which means there's nothing too small to pray for. It doesn't matter how small a detail in your life it might be, it's not too small for God to be interested in. Uh, Jesus tells us in Matthew 10 that even the very hairs on our head are numbered. Okay, God knows exactly how many hairs you have on your head. And I can see from some of us that might be fewer than others, but he knows with each one of us how many hairs. 
It also means that nothing is too big for us to pray for. You may feel that a situation in your life or in the world is too big and too out of control to pray for. Well, no, this is the Sovereign Lord. Now, turn back to Acts chapter 4 and that prayer of the Apostles. Acts chapter, Acts chapter 4. And look at how the Apostles pray. Acts chapter 4, look at verse 27. They pray, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. So because God is sovereign, it is a great incentive to pray to him. It's not a disincentive to think, well, if God's got everything under control, then there's no point in me praying. No, because God has things in control, we can ask of him. He has the power to answer our prayers. Uh, It is a great incentive to pray. God is able. He is the sovereign. Now, that on itself, I think, would give us enough incentive to pray, but we'd still have that feeling, well... God is sort of theoretically able, but how do I know he wants to? How do I know God wants to answer my prayers? Well, the second point we see from the Bible is that God is willing to answer our prayers. He's not just able, but sort of remote and far away. No, he's a God who's come near to us and who shows us that he longs to answer our prayers. Okay, for Christians, the Bible says that God is our Father. God is our Father, therefore he is willing to answer our prayers. Now I'm guessing in a a gathering of this side, we will have very, very different experiences of fatherhood. Okay, some of us are very thankful for our fathers. Uh, Some of you might be grieving your father. Some of you might be struggling to forgive your father for things that he's done to you. Maybe some of us in this room have never known our father. I'm sure a lot of you are fathers and maybe you're not quite sure how you feel about your own fatherhood, whether you're a good father or not. Well, human fatherhood needs to be seen in the light of God's fatherhood and not the other way round. It's not that there's a human concept called fatherhood and God's a bit like that. No, God is the father. He defines fatherhood. And even the best human fathers are a pale reflection of God's fatherhood. Uh, The Bible shows us in a number of places what it means for God to be our Father. Uh, It speaks of him being the one who provides for us, him being the one who supports us, who nurtures us, who encourages us, who protects us, who strengthens us. And therefore it is a great incentive to pray for him, uh, to pray to him. Uh, Please turn back to Matthew 7, which we had uh, read to us earlier, Matthew 7 and verse 7 again if someone can yell a page number <coughs> seven, seven one three. Six eight five. thank you Mark Mark was an engineer by the way Matthew chapter 7 and verses uh, 7 to 11 
Jesus has shown us in these words, as we heard them earlier, that God is not distant, he's not remote. He's not emotionally uninvolved in our lives. No, God intimately cares for us. As Christian people, we are his children and he is our father. And so therefore we have access to him. So Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. God is accessible. We can now, as he is our father, approach him. We can ask of him. We have access to him. We can come before him with our prayers, with our needs and with our requests. That's all well and good, but some of us might be thinking, well, how do I know that God actually wants to bless me? Okay, I'm sure he's my father, but how do I know that as my father he wants to bless me? Well, Jesus shows us in the next few verses, he gives us a a little illustration in uh, verses 9 and 10. He says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? You can imagine it, can't you? It would be an absurd thought. A a kid comes up to to dad and says, please can I have some bread or some fish, which were, were sort of staple foods in that time. And Jesus says, just imagine the father saying, okay, open up your hands and close your eyes. And the child feels something heavy fall into his hand and he takes a bite and it's a stone and his teeth all break up. Or he opens his hands out and feels something scaly and thinks, oh, a lovely fish. Until he opens his eyes and gets a nasty surprise. Now Jesus is saying, that's an absurd thing. He says, if you then, even though you're evil, Jesus just assumes that humans by nature are evil, if you then know how to give good gifts to your children, well, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? In other words, if, if wicked and stupid human fathers have figured this one out, then how much more has God figured it out? If even a lousy dad knows how to give something good to a son, I can see some sons nodding their, nudging their dads at this point, <laughs> Well, how much more will our perfect Father in heaven long to give us good things when we ask him? God is not reluctant. He is eager to bless us. He loves to answer our prayers. That doesn't mean he'll always give us what we want because that might not be good for us. In most cases it probably won't be. For the sake of our goodness, it's sometimes good for him to answer our prayer in a different way, in a way that we didn't expect. Sometimes, for the sake of our goodness, God allows difficult things to happen to us. But he will always answer our prayers and give us good things in response to them. So our prayer is personal. It is relational. It is intimate. We're not just babbling off words and sort of reciting it to the great unknown. We are talking to our Father in heaven. We pray to the Father, we pray by the Spirit, and we pray in the name of his Son. We come, if you like, with Jesus standing to back us up. We pray in the name of Jesus. One of my favourite pictures uh, is of President John F. Kennedy. And it's a picture from when he was once at work in the Oval Office, and he was sat behind the desk, that great desk in the Oval Office in the White House, busy sort of drafting 
whatever president's draft in the Oval Office, probably doing a Sudoku or something. (laughs) And his little son, John John, comes in, a toddler. And the picture's wonderful because under the table, under this great mighty desk, is little John John, and he sat on the floor playing. It's a wonderful picture because this is the most protected office in the world. I don't know how many lines of security you have to get through to walk into that room, um, but someone will stop you very early on if you're not supposed to be there. The most protected office in the world, and yet little John John can toddle in, get his toys out on the floor and play. And it's as if he's saying, yes, I know he's your president, but he's my daddy. And it's a wonderful picture of access, of intimacy. Well, Jesus says the sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth is our Father. And therefore we have access to him. We can come before him as his dearly loved children and we can pray to him. We can come and we can keep coming. Uh, When Jesus talks about asking and seeking and knocking, he's talking in a tense that suggests you keep doing it. It's not something that you do and then it's done and you finished it's something we keep doing we keep asking of God we keep coming before him we pray because God is sovereign and because he's our father he can answer our prayers and he longs to give us good things well just as we finish uh, let's rule out some bad reasons to pray Uh, we shouldn't pray to try and manipulate God Okay, sometimes Christians talk about prayer in such a way that it suggests that God needs handling. You know, we've got to try and pull the strings and twist his arm and uh, wrestle a, a, a kind of a good thing from him. And so sometimes people treat prayer as a way of manipulating God. Um, it becomes a ritual, it becomes maybe a mantra. If we say it over and over again, then he'll eventually give in. Or if we make our prayers louder and louder and louder, then he'll just get so fed up with the racket that he'll give us what we want. Or we sort of think, well, if I, if I go on a fast, then he really has to answer the prayer. Okay, we kind of do a spiritual hunger strike. So I'm not going to eat until you give me this. Now, we shouldn't pray to try and manipulate God as if you need to twist his arm. No, God is a God who longs to give us good things. We shouldn't pray because of guilt, as if we sort of think, well, I haven't prayed for a while, therefore I ought to pray and I'll just get this over with and then it's done. I have two kinds of relative back home. I have the kind of relative, uh, this is probably going on the website, but hopefully none of them will uh, listen to this. <laughs> I have the kind of relative that I see very often and enjoy very much, and it's always a pleasure to see them. There are other relatives who I see very infrequently, maybe once every two years, because we don't really know each other and it's a bit awkward, and therefore I see them because I, I feel guilty if I don't. You know, they're my aunties and my uncles or whatever it might be, So therefore I think, well, I'll go and see them this year and then it's done for another couple of years and I don't need to worry about it for a bit longer. If we pray to God with that kind of attitude, we've not understood who he is. Uh, We're not to pray out of guilt. Nor should we pray as a sort of last resort. So you've got a problem in your life and you you have various ways you try and fix it. And once you've exhausted every other option, well, then's the time to pray, isn't it? It's a kind of emergency pull cord thing you get in a train or whatever no we shouldn't pray as a last resort Uh, one of the great Christians um, 
during the Holocaust was Corrie ten Boone. And she once said, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tyre? Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tyre? In other words, is it the kind of thing you pray instinctively about whatever is going on in your life, that your life is driven by prayer, or is it the thing you do when you can't do anything else and it's a last resort? No, we should pray to God because he can help us and he longs to help us. Well, let me just finish by reading two verses to you which certainly challenge me as I think about prayer. Don't turn this up, just listen in. James 4, verse 2 says this. You do not have because you do not ask God. I like James, it's a very blunt book. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. Uh, We're singing a song a bit later on, I think, called um, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And it reminds us of the blessings we forfeit when we don't pray to God. You do not have because you do not ask God. So let me ask you this. Would you love to see your nation one for Christ? If you're Malaysian, think about Malaysia. Would you love to see Malaysia one for Christ? If you're from somewhere else, think of there. Would you love to see your home country one for Christ? Would you love to see such a great movement of God's Spirit sweeping through the land that thousands and thousands of people bow their knee to Jesus Christ and glory in his name? Well, are we praying for such things? You do not have because you do not ask God. Well, let's ask God and let's ask big. Nothing is too big to pray for. But let me close by reading to you Deuteronomy 4 and verse 7. Speaking of uh, the people of God in the Old Testament, What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? What other nation, or think of what other people, or what other religion... What other religion, what other people are so great to have their gods near them the way our God, the Lord our God, is near us whenever we pray to him? Well, let's pray as we finish. Our Father, we thank you for the kind of God that you are. We thank you that you're not a sort of local God, but you are the sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth, who has made each one of us. We thank you that you have all authority. We thank you that you are the kind of God who through the death of Jesus we can call Father. We thank you that you are the kind of God who loves to give his children good things when they ask. And so, Father, we pray that you would teach us to pray. Father, when we're not praying, would you remind us of the kind of God you are so that we will pray. We thank you that you are able and willing to answer our prayers in the very best way. Help us, therefore, to be people of prayer. For Jesus' sake. Amen.